John chapter 4, starting at verse 43. After the two days he left the Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met, met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Joshua, thank you very much for reading so clearly. Now, um, for those of you who don't know, who haven't heard, um, the result of um, Leeds United v Brighton was 1-1, so uh, spoils were shared. And the good news is, is that Jeremy and I can remain good friends. And... Uh, I, I'm here tonight on testimony to that. Um, well, it's been a joy to be with you, and it's lovely actually to see uh, new faces, and it's a reminder of what a, what a, a full and a lively family uh, Trinity Islington is. And as I look round and I see you, and, and so to put uh, faces to all the family, <coughs> or to a large number of the family. So, uh, my name's Johnny Dyer. I worked for many years at All Souls Langham Place. And just recently, I've, I've switched, and I'm now working uh, for the London Diocese. And it's been a real joy, actually, to, to join with you this weekend, and a real privilege, particularly this service, I think, at, right at the very end, to sort of bring and pull things together. So thank you so much uh, for being here. So before we actually dig in uh, to God's Word, let's together, as, as the family, just uh, pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy of sitting under your Word. And we pray this evening as we gather here, that you would speak to us in your precious name. Amen. Uh, George Muller, I, I'm sure that you're familiar with George Muller. If, if you're not, then he was a remarkable man. Um, actually, he was an evangelist in the 19th century, and he did such great work amongst orphans, and he was really well known for um, living by faith. And there's sort of so many stories of moments where he's, he's got all these orphans gathered around and... Um, there's, there's no food on the table. And then he sort of begins and he says, thank you, Lord, for the food that you're about to deliver. And then the story goes and knock at the door and in comes the, the, the sort of the neighbor who arrives with, with food. And so his whole story really is, is one of living by faith. And he gives this great quote. Let me, let me read it to you right at the beginning of our time as we look at this passage. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where humanity's power ends. So we've been, we've been in, in the book of John, and we've been looking particularly at chapters 2, 3, and 4, and they sit together as, as a unit. 
Uh, and uh, John here has brought us full circle. For those who are observant, you will notice that we find ourselves back in Cana of Galilee. Uh, we're back once again here uh, where the first sign or the first miracle that Jesus performed, remember, was in Cana when the wine was, ta- was, was turned into, when the water was turned into wine at the wedding feast. And now we have what John describes this as the second sign. And this is about to be performed. Now, one of the things that's crucial to understand when you look at John's gospel is that the purpose of John's gospel is given right at the very end. I'm sure uh, we're familiar with that. And it's given there in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And this is the purpose. This is the reason why John wrote his gospel. And it's very straightforward. In verse 31, we read, but these words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, life abundant in his name. So really, it's a first-hand, a first eyewitness account of John who's saying, these are the reasons, read this book, and this is the reason why you should believe that Jesus is who he claims he is. And if you do, you will have life. And the whole section from chapter 2 through to the end of chapter 4 has been John unpacking what it is to believe, what it is to believe in Jesus, that we may have life. In fact, fact, this theme of belief was first introduced back there in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 11, John warned us very clearly that Jesus' own people, the Jews, would struggle to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. We read there, verse 11, Chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive, did not believe him. And we've seen that. We've seen that in the way uh, the crowds in Jerusalem at the Passover in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, they refused to believe that Jesus was anything more than just a mere miracle worker. Nothing deeper, nothing more. And as such, we're told, verse 24, of chapter 2, that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He's not going to entrust himself to people who just show spurious faith. It's very easy, isn't it, to believe in, in the miracles that are of benefit to you, that, that sort of the water that's been turned into wine. Oh, yes, we, we like that. We believe in that. But it has to be deeper, the faith that Jesus requires. And Nicodemus, we looked at Nicodemus uh, this morning, the Old Testament Jewish scholar, and quite frankly, somebody who knows the Old Testament and knows the Bible, should have known better. But he was just the same as, as, the, as the rest of the Jewish people. He acknowledged, yes, that Jesus is a good teacher. In fact, he's a teacher that comes from God. He must be because of the miracles. But nothing more, Jesus, in Nicodemus's opinion, was nothing more than just a, a mere miracle worker. And Jesus' own people are also a real letdown. Well, in contrast to Nicodemus, and this is the way that John structures his gospel. There's this Samaritan woman, and suddenly we haven't had the chance, the time to, to look at that, but I'm sure you're familiar with the story. But a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan who is despised by the Jews, she comes to believe in Jesus, to believe in who he is. And she declares in chapter 4, verse 25 to 26, that Jesus is the Messiah. So you've got this direct contrast between Nicodemus, the scholarly Jew, and this this insignificant woman, this Samaritan, who puts her faith in Jesus. And then we get the contrast 
uh, between uh, the, the, the Samaritans and Jesus' own people. So in chapter 4, uh, verse 3, the, in that little section there, there's a revival's broken out, actually, amongst the Samaritans. And the Samaritan people, they put their faith in Jesus, and we're told in chapter 4, verse 43, that they declare, they see who he is, that he's more than a mere miracle worker, and they declare that he is the savior of the world. So these encounters with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, John, in different ways, what he's doing there is giving us a visible picture of what the book of Ecclesiastes means when he says that God has set eternity in our hearts. There's a longing in both of these souls to find answers to their questions. That's why Nicodemus went to Jesus at night with questions. Now, do you remember how uh, Louis Pascal, the French uh, philosopher, put it? He said this, There is a God-shaped void at the center of our lives, and that void can only be filled by faith in Jesus Christ. St. Augustine uh, 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 says it so beautifully in the first paragraph of his Confessions. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's a restlessness in both Nicodemus and in the Samaritan woman. Is there a restlessness in you? Are you full of questions, seeking answers? Now, as we've read through John's Gospel, the, the opening questions, there is one question that keeps arising, keeps jumping out. How do we, how do I receive this new life? And Jesus, throughout these chapters, has been giving to us word pictures in order to answer that question. We get it, he says, by being born again, or born from above. We get it, we see this in the story of, of the woman at the well, the woman, and Samaritan woman. We get it, and she's, there it says, you know, we get it by asking for the living water. And here in our passage this evening, John answers the question in no unmistakable way. How do we receive this new life? We receive new life by coming to Jesus Christ by faith in his word. What we have here is a beautiful example of the pilgrimage of one man, one individual, the progress of faith in the soul of a particular individual. And I want to trace that journey in three stages. First of all, we see that this man has faith in the miracle working power of Jesus. Mere belief in the miracle working power of Jesus. Now Jesus has been in Samaria where he had this amazing encounter with this woman at the well uh, which led to a great spiritual awakening in that area and the unexpected spiritual harvest. Lots of Samaritans have come to Christ. And this must have been immensely encouraging to Jesus and his disciples given the response he'd been receiving from his own people. And we see there in verse 43 of the passage that we're looking at together that Jesus resumes his trip that he began back in verse 3 of chapter 4. And he leaves Samaria traveling north for Galilee. And when Jesus arrives in Galilee, we're told here in verse 45 that the Galileans welcomed him. But in what sense, in what sense did the Galileans welcome him? 
And what way did his own people welcome him? Did they welcome Jesus in the same way that the Samaritans had? Now, is it me, or do you also detect when you read through this passage that John is being somewhat ironic here when he says the Galileans welcomed him? It certainly was, and I found myself thinking as I read through this passage two or three times. And I want to suggest to you that John gives us at least two clues that suggest that he is being ironic when he says that the Galileans welcomed him. First, we see after Jesus arrives in Galilee, verse 43, and before verse 45, when he says the Galileans welcomed him, John, randomly it seems, inserts into the narrative, almost without explanation, this rather intriguing proverb. Do you notice that? Verse 44, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. It's a proverb that leaves us thinking that as far as John was concerned, Jesus did not get the honor, the welcome that he deserved. He's certainly welcomed as a miracle worker for sure, but is he welcomed as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world? The second clue that John is being somewhat ironic about this welcome comes at the end of verse 45. When Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Do you see where we're going here? See, John tells us that the Galileans who welcomed him were the same Galileans who had been at the Passover festival in John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. Those with the spurious faith. Those who thought Jesus was no more than just a mere miracle worker. Those who Jesus would not entrust himself to. And they're now home. But they remembered those miracles that Jesus had been doing in Jerusalem. Of course they're excited that Jesus is back. No, it's the kind of welcome that you give a, a performing entertainer as he comes into town. It was mere belief in the miracle-working power of Jesus and no more. There's no recognition in this welcome that Jesus was unique, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he deserved honor and worship. And, as, and yet, as Jesus revealed in response to the faith of the Samaritan woman, Jesus is so much more than a mere miracle worker. That's why John, I suggest to you, is being somewhat insincere when he says the Galileans welcomed him, particularly when compared with the Samaritan welcome. And we actually find further support for John being insincere here in the way Jesus rebukes the Galileans in verse 48 for simply wanting a mere miracle worker. Now, our short time together doesn't allow the room to push on through the chapters and, and explore the, the Jewish utter and complete failure to properly believe in Jesus. It's absolutely tragic. In John chapter 5, there is rising opposition. In John chapter 6, the crowds misunderstand Jesus, and many of his disciples, they abandon him. And the misunderstanding continues right through the chapters until John pronounces the final summarizing verdict on the large-scale failure of the Jewish people to believe in Jesus at the end of chapter 12. We read, Judgment is coming, Jesus says. With one final appeal, 
Jesus says these words, believe in the light while you still have the light so that you may become children of light. And these words of warning mark the end of Jesus' three years of public ministry. It's now left for Jesus in chapter 13 through chapter 1 of John to demonstrate to the world during Holy Week in unquestionable terms that he is the Messiah, the Son of God through the sign of the cross, through his death and his resurrection. And it's when, it's when we see the whole context, and I've slightly labored this point, I wanted to set up the context, is when we see the whole context of the first 12 chapters, that it's a failure to really believe who Jesus is, that we can make sense of the story before us this evening. And quite simply, as we'll see, it's an invitation to you and to me to put our faith in a wholehearted, cross-centered way in Jesus. It also makes sense, the bigger context makes sense of the Samaritan interlude earlier in chapter 4. It's there to remind us as readers of who Jesus really is at this point, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's also there in no small part uh, to make the Jewish readers of John's day envious. See, while Jesus is blessing those with new life and forgiveness, he's going to other people, they're in danger of being passed by. They urgently need to seek out Jesus, the Messiah, on his terms, not theirs. Otherwise, John is saying, you will miss out. You know, is that us? Week in, week out, from this pulpit right here that I'm holding. The invitation goes out to believe. Do we see the blessing of new life and forgiveness going to other people? Are we in danger of missing out on new life in Christ? See, the Galileans, they, they welcome Jesus, but not as their Messiah. They welcomed him because they liked the miracles that Jesus did at the Passover. Uh, you know, they, they enjoyed the fact that he was providing entertainment, if you like. And we know what a dim view Jesus takes of that kind of faith. This, then, is in direct contrast with what we see next. So this is the context. Uh, we come now, then. Let's have a look at this man in our story. And it seems that while he wasn't necessarily in Jerusalem at the Passover, he still comes, actually, with the same kind of faith. And it seems that while he wasn't there, he still sort of, he still sort of sees Jesus, first and foremost, as, as somebody who's just a, just a miracle worker and no more. Look how the text is structured. Take a look at this. It's structured, you see, in such a way to emphasize the kind of faith that this man comes to Jesus with. So, verse 46, Jesus, we're told, is back in Cana, the site of his first miracle. Verse 47, this man travels from Capernaum to ask Jesus to perform a miracle. That's why he goes. Verse 48, Jesus responds to him and everyone else with a rebuke. Unless you people see miracles, you never believe. Okay? Man's gone looking for a miracle. Jesus rebukes all the people, but we know what often happens when you're doing a general rebuke. He's also rebuking the individual who's come looking for a miracle. So John is representing this man as just another typical Jewish believer. 
It's the same old, same old. Another person, even if his reasons for doing so are understandable, we see the context of the story, you can understand why he would do what he's doing. Nevertheless, he's coming to Jesus in the first place because Jesus can perform miracles. Now, you know, we can obviously read verse 48, as I say, as a sweeping rebuke, but also I see it very much as, as an invitation, actually, to the man. It's a sweeping rebuke, but it's an, actually an invitation to the man to really believe. Take a proper look at who I am, Jesus is saying in that rebuke. And we see here the man comes to Jesus with mere belief in the miracle-working power you know, of Jesus. You know, it's, it's low level of faith. It's, it's rooted, actually, in desperateness. It's belief in simply what Jesus could do. And we now see his faith growing. It grows from what Jesus could do to trusting in what Jesus says. It's a deeper level of faith. It's faith, secondly, it's faith in the word of Jesus. Now we've already, no doubt, already picked up that our main protagonist in this story is, is, is a royal official. He's... Um, or as the King James puts it, he's a nobleman. He literally is the king's man. And he would have been part of the royal court of Herod of Antipas, who ruled throughout the area during uh, Jesus' ministry. Famous, of course, for um, having John the Baptist uh, killed. And this man would have been part of the governing class of Galilee. And this man's son is dying. He lives in Capernaum, and that's about 20 miles uh, or so from um, you go from Capernaum to, to Cana of Galilee. Uh, it's not far if you're in your car, but on foot, it was a, a fair distance to travel. And this man, as soon as he hears that Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, makes haste to get there. He wants to be where Jesus is. And what is striking is that the circumstances in this man's life have almost certainly radically changed the priorities of his life. You know, his young son is tossing with fever and about to die. You know, every parent here in this church this evening has experienced that helpless feeling, that when, when the cold clutch of fear, that, you know, that, that moment that, that, that grips the heart of yourself as, as you watch your little boy or your little girl tossing in fever. And he's a nobleman. You know, it's not hard to imagine that he's made all sorts of provisions for his son, for the welfare of his son. But now, like the people at the wedding, like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, he'd come to appreciate that no earthly provision is adequate for his son's actual needs. There's a God-shaped void in his life. There's a God-shaped void in his son's life. You know, extremes will do that for us, won't it? This is a, an urgent situation. His son is dying, and this nobleman, who no doubt was in the habit of giving orders, has been reduced to a beggar. Verse 47, he went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. You know, in many ways, that is what prayer is often like. Prayer reduces each one of us to be beggars, to come with empty hands and to plead at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already seen that Jesus' initial response to him in verse 48, which honestly, given the urgency of the man's need and given also that this man begs Jesus, seems rather cruel, don't you think? 
Here's this man who is begging Jesus to come before it is too late. He's evidently desperate. But Jesus holds him at arm's length. He even rebukes him for coming, looking for a miracle, saying, you come to me because I am able to work a miracle, but it's not what I'm here for. I'm not here, Jesus is saying, to satisfy your spectator interest. I'm not just some visiting entertainer. I'm here as your savior so that you may recognize that you, what you need most is a savior. What your son needs most, actually, is a savior. See, Jesus was burdened to make sure that those to whom he gave himself weren't merely spectators, but were those who were properly trusting in him. Now, we understand, of course, what's happening because we've experienced the same, haven't we, in our relationship with Jesus? That sometimes he makes us wait. That he tests us. That sometimes, before he gives us the answer that we desire, he puts us on hold. And you're screaming inside, Lord, where are you? I mean, don't you hate it? You know, those sort of, you know, you, you kind of, ring up and, and uh, you're trying to um, get someone to pick up the phone and it just rings and rings and rings and you give up and you kind of start again or, or even worse your connection cuts out and you kind of like have to start again you go back and you've been doing this for ages and ages and eventually somebody picks up and, and then they say to you oh do you mind if I put you on hold and at that moment you want to scream out yes I do mind that you put me on hold now Jesus sometimes puts us on hold when we go with our requests. What is he doing? He's testing us. You know, a loved one is in need and you fly to Jesus and you pray and he says, wait a minute. I've got something you need to learn first. And this is what seems to be happening here. It's not Jesus being cruel. It's Jesus' way of inviting this man to a deeper level of faith. Notice what happens. You see, the royal official, he won't be put off. Even though we know that it's God who is putting him off, he's not perturbed. There's a stickability to his faith. There's a perseverance to his faith. God has actually been using his experience of adversity in order to bring him to see that the only one thing matters. And you notice the change in the language of this man between the first appeal and the second appeal. Verse 47 and 49. Now his first appeal goes something like this. Jesus, come and heal my son, my son, because he's close to death. Come before my child dies. Do you notice what's missing? There's no request for Jesus to heal his son. See that in the second appeal? Just come before my child dies. Whereas in the first appeal, Jesus, come and heal my son. Now he just says, Jesus, come before my child dies. There's no request there. It's missing. Now, there may be nothing in it. I have a tendency to go and spend way too much time looking at the text sometimes. And maybe there's absolutely nothing in it, but maybe there is in God's providence. I wonder here if John is hinting to us that something has sharpened in the sense of priority in this nobleman. So that the one thing needed now is for Jesus to come regardless of whether Jesus will heal the little boy or not. Before this little boy dies, he now understands that what really matters is that he must have Jesus. He must believe and have eternal life. 
I think John here is drawing that out as he alludes to the growing of this man's faith in Jesus. It's an appeal of the man that's not focused on signs and wonders, but on Jesus and the child's need to have Jesus. And this test of faith remains as real for each one of us today. Honestly, let's be really honest with one another now. It's been a delight this weekend to see so many children and you just feel like you're blessed as a congregation. I have a real sense that this is a place where children can, can flourish and will flourish. And that is a delight and a joy. But let me give you a warning. What is the thing that you want for your children? And I want you to answer honestly. And this is true for me too. I've been guilty of this. A good education? A successful career? A nice property, I'm already putting money aside, you're thinking, because there's no way they're going to be able to afford a property. On, on, and so they're going to need a big deposit, what you're thinking at the moment. Or is it, is it this? Is it this? That they might have life. That they might know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, in years to come, that is the thing that your children will thank you for get your priorities right. Not that any of the other things are necessarily bad. Get that priority right and model it. And if we needed conclusive evidence of this man's growing faith, we're given it here in the next verse with a remarkable expression of faith. The man says to Jesus, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replies to such faith, faith verse 50, go, your son will live. Or as the Greek has it, Go, your son is living. See, the word of promise is a word of power. And these words from Jesus are of such interest because we read verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Or literally in the Greek, and this is a shocking omission from the NIV translators, the man believed the word of Jesus and departed. And by doing so, he demonstrates that unlike most Galileans, he is not simply interested in miracles. In this statement, the man believed the word of Jesus. We have actually the clearest expression of faith in the New Testament. See, what is faith? As we conclude our time together this weekend and tonight, what is faith? Faith is believing in the word of Jesus. It's a sharp definition. It is trusting in what Jesus says. It's why we give ourselves to such careful handling of God's word. For here in our hand, we have the words of Jesus to trust and obey. See, in this exchange, we have seen this father growing in faith. And we see then next that Jesus gives him the chance to come to a full realization of faith. To believe not only on what Jesus could do but to believe only on what Je not only on what Jesus said. So first of all, the first point this evening was to believe not only what Jesus could do, that's faith in the miracle working power of Jesus, that was point one. And then to believe, secondly, not only on what Jesus could do, point two is faith in the word of Jesus. But I want us to see finally that this man has faith in the person 
of Jesus. To have not just faith in the word of Jesus, but to have a deep and meaningful relationship with the living word, the person of Christ who speaks to us through this written word. There in verse 51, this man we see is, is on his way home. And he stopped pleading with and begging Jesus to act. And according to what he thought was the right way to handle the situation, but accepted Jesus' own way of acting. And I suspect if he's anything uh, like me, or I suspect also like, the, like you, that he went along, he'd taken Jesus at his word, but he's still full of doubts. Still thinking in his mind, you know, I, I don't know if I've done the right thing. You know, I've done what Jesus said, I've obeyed him. Uh, but I'm sure he was still troubled and questioned. You know, should he have actually persuaded Jesus, actually insisted, he had the authority probably to do that, to insist that Jesus came with him. But faith, you see, is not what we feel. Faith is what we do. And we see here that that is exactly that this is what this man does. He acts. He acts in faith. Even if he's feeling unsure, there are those moments, aren't they, when we are, we, we, we're not sure, we're, we're hesitant, that our feelings don't resonate with what we know rationally we, wish we should do. No, faith is what we do, even when we don't necessarily feel it. You can imagine the scene. The man's a few miles from home, the servants have heard that he's coming, and they, they've gone out to greet him, and they meet him with this glorious news, your son is living. Actually, the very same words Jesus used to the Father. And he immediately inquires, as imagine you would, fascinated, at what time? At what time was my son restored to health? And it was at one in the afternoon, verse 52. And of course, it dawns on him that was the precise moment when Jesus had said, go, your son lives. The fever suddenly left the boy and he began to mend. Notice there's no laying on of hands or anointing with oil, just a sovereign word from the Creator King. That's all it took for the creation to come into being in the first place. The Word of God spoke, and this all came into existence. God spoke, and it came to pass. And that's all that ever takes place, actually, for one new creature in Jesus Christ to come to faith. For Christ to speak his word alone. And at the same hour, from a distance of, of 20 miles, and it might well have been 200 light years away, Jesus spoke. It makes no difference. He speaks the word even today from that throne of God in heaven. He speaks and he can bring miracles and life even amongst us this evening. You see, here is a beautiful and a touching example of how Jesus comes and speaks into the life of a family. How Jesus brings his saving presence, how Jesus causes faith to emerge and grow and become visible and become strong and become persistent in one family. You see, it is at this moment when the man discovers that his son was healed, at that very hour that Jesus had spoken, that there broke upon him a new realization. Not only of what Jesus could do, not even of what Jesus said, but of who Jesus was. That he had authority over all illness, that he was not limited by distance or time, that he had power in areas beyond the knowledge and reach of men, that he operated in the realm of the impossible. 
And when the man understood that, we read there, verse 53, he believed and all his household with him. He believed in the person of Jesus and his little boy was restored to life. In fact, the whole family received new life. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture, pictorial representation of John chapter 20, verse 31. That by believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. Now, are you restless? Have you been coming along to this church now for weeks, for months, possibly years? And yet still you've not made that commitment. It seems that others around you are receiving this new life. Come. Come, I encourage you. Come and find rest in him. So we come then to the end of our weekend together. The first sign was changing water into wine. And as we've seen, that pointed to a new sacrificial system through the blood of Jesus. As did the, the cleansing of the temple. They both pointed to this, this verse that we've been looking at, that the old has gone, the new has come. But the newest thing to come is an invitation. An invitation to believe in Jesus Christ for new life. It is to have new faith. The second sign tells us that it is often in the realms beyond our capacity, like illness, like unemployment, that our Lord grows our faith. It's in those moments when we feel and know that we are utterly and totally out of control. Maybe that's how you're feeling tonight. You just fear what tomorrow brings you. But be excited, because the Lord has this. He's got this. He's not surprised. You Maybe you've been ringing him and saying, Lord, where are you? And he's just saying to you, wait, because he's got something to teach you. This is an opportunity for him to deepen your faith and your trust in him. You know, if I may suggest, as we close, the heart of this story, and indeed the whole of this section, chapters 2 to 4, is summed up in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And you'll know it very well. It's following that, uh, that tremendous record of, of the heroes of the Old Testament. whole litany, actually, of, of, of sinners. You know, you probably don't feel like a hero. Just read through chapter 11. But in the Lord's sight, when you cross that line, in his mind's eye, you will be a hero. There's actually nothing in any of those people. They're absolutely flawed, just like you, and certainly like me flawed sinners, and yet they're declared heroes. And there we see um, that they are surrounded, that, that they're described, that these are, these are they're surrounded here by this great cloud of witnesses, and that's all the names, and they're, they're surrounding the throne, and, and, and one day we will do the same. But there's this concluding verse, and I guess I want to say this to you as, as you head out as a church, yes, into this week, but I'm more sort of looking to the future. A great question was asked today, what's the dream? What's the dream for this church? Well, my dream is that it's brimming with life. Brimming with life abundance. So hold on to these, these verses as you head out the door and you head into the week. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Let us run with perseverance the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or the author and perfecter of our faith. See, this 
ultimately is what Jesus has come to do. He took on flesh, became a man to bestow faith and make it grow. And this story tells us that we are in the hands of one who does not always answer our prayers the way we expect. But in doing so, he lifts us to a higher awareness of who he is, of his authority and his power in this world around us. Our faith, as a result, becomes stronger, clearer, and truer. You know, I hope this weekend that you have been somewhat encouraged in your faith, that you are ready to trust the Lord for the circumstances in which you will find yourselves facing tomorrow. Knowing that you are not on your own, knowing that he is responsive, but not always in the way that you ask him. Because he sees far more clearly than you do what you need. And he loves you, and he knows you by name, and he's got you. And he'll see you over that final line. That's the promise. So let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, and it's a different race a different path for each one of us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Well, let's just take a moment. Let's be at a moment of quiet. And it's been a long weekend. And uh, I'm sure many of you are feeling tired. But why don't we just, just, be, just be quiet just, just for a moment last thoughts before before we're swept away in the busyness of of this coming week and uh, let's take a moment to be still and to bring any final thoughts to our lord and savior and then i'll pray Father, we thank you for that great example of a man and his growing faith. He ran to you because he, saw, he thought that he knew what he needed. But you told him to stop and listen and listen more deeply. And Lord, we thank you for those moments, even in our lives right now, even at this moment, where you've caused us to stop and be still and know that you are God. Pray, Lord, that we would have a growing sense of confidence that you have got this situation, that you know what it's, it is, that you are listening, that you are hearing, and that you'll deepen our faith through it. So I pray also, Lord, your blessing upon this community, this fellowship, this gathering of your people here in Trinity, that you would see them grow and you would see them flourish. And this would be a place that's marked by grace and marked by love for you and marked by life. And your blessing particularly upon our children. Keep them, bless them, preserve them, and let each one grow up to love you first. So help us as those of us who have responsibility, not just as parents actually, but as a whole church family, to model Jesus to them. 
So your blessing upon us, we ask in your precious name. Amen.